Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. My name is Patrick Francie, and I'm the CEO and managing partner of the Real Estate Investment Network. In addition to being a business owner, I'm also a real estate investor. I'm a coach, a husband, recently a grandfather. Now, along with that, I'm also committed to stretching beyond what I've achieved by continuing to elevate in living a fulfilled life by making a positive difference in my world. I'm going to invite you to join me as I delve into the details of the many wins of my guests in achieving their goals, along with, shall we say, the frustrations of the occasional deal gone wrong, because my guests are here to help you learn by talking about what's real for them in business and investing in real estate, from the life they're now able to live to the person they become along the way as they pursued their dreams in having the freedom they've gained by building a sustainable financial future for them and their family. Good day, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to this episode of the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. Before I introduce my next guest, I want to begin the show by first thanking you for listening in and for your support and the feedback you provide us on the show, as well as to remind and even encourage you to send any of your comments, your suggestions, or your questions directly to me at CEO at RainCanada.com. That is CEO at ReinCanada.com. We love to hear from you, so please feel free. And if you're inclined, I'd definitely appreciate it if you were to share this show with your friends, your family, your workmates, perhaps your pets, and then rate the show and comment on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud, or whatever platform you happen to use to listen in. As well, while you're at it, why not follow us on the Everyday Millionaire Facebook page? So thank you again for the feedback you provide the team and I. It is sincerely appreciated. Okay, so let's get this show started, shall we? Our show today is one in the Rain member series where I take the opportunity to shine a light on just a few of the many men and women of the community who are inclined to chat with me on the show and who love to share their lessons and their journey as a real estate investor. And today my guest is James Canal, who is a longtime Rain member. He's a real estate investor and he's a realtor. He began investing and founded his business Mogul Realty Group more than 10 years ago and with a vision that he has carried forward from then till right up till today and continues of building his business by creating an environment designed to elevate and drive exceptional realtor services. James puts a strong emphasis and shines a light on personal goal achievement and not just for the individuals on his team or himself, but his clients and his team's clients. His own experience and passion as an investor is truly what drives him to help other investors to the degree that he and his team have become true specialists in investment properties. James' personal portfolio has grown to over 250 doors in the Edmonton and surrounding area. And by leveraging his extensive personal experience, he's actually become one of Edmonton's top performing realtors. He's an award-winning realtor, and he's been awarded Realtor of the Year, Top Investor of the Year, Top 1% of Realtors in Canada, and Remax Chairman's Club. So, when he's not working, what is he doing? Well, in his downtime, he takes his passion for downhill skiing to the mountains whenever he can, and to add to that, he hits the gym on a 
pretty regular basis to prepare for the occasional triathlon or Spartan race that he likes to participate in. He challenges himself and those around him to be their best, to work hard, to play hard, and, as he likes to say, to live well. Without further delay, James Cano. James Cano, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for taking the time to join me today, James. Looking forward to this conversation. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Yeah, I'm looking forward to having a great conversation with you. It's been exciting to have an opportunity to be on your podcast. So we're going to dig right in. You know, your bio really doesn't cover all the things that you've done or that you've accomplished. And it's not like you're an old guy. You've, you're a young man that's really accomplished a lot and done a lot. But and, and because of that, I have a lot of questions I want to ask you and a lot of topics to cover. And we're going to probably jump around a little bit. But to give the listener some familiarity with James Canal, give me, do you have a 30 second uh, elevator pitch that you use? If I said to you today, James, what do you do? We're meeting for the first time. James, uh, glad to meet you. What do you do? What's your answer to that? Yeah, I would say I'm the head of a real estate team. We've got five realtors and we focus primarily on investors. And we we give a lot back to the investment community through a bunch of events and coaching that we do with people. And, um, you know, our, our primary focus is finding great properties for great people. In the investment world, is that correct? In the investment world. I mean, we we still do a lot of business with, I mean, every single person on my team is Edmonton born and raised except for one. And so, you know, between university buddies, high school buddies, friends, family referrals, we still do a lot of um, residential retail business because we're not going to say no to, you know, like I sold a house to one of my best friends from university and his wife over the summer. Um, But our primary focus is investors. Now, I want to talk to you as much as you're a realtor, I want to really talk to you about your role as a business owner. But before we go down that path and that discussion, give me a little bit of your background. Now, you were born and raised where? In Edmonton? Now, we're, because of this is, you know, this podcast really does go global. You know, we're talking about Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. But where were you born and raised? Yeah, born and raised in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, for those of you that know Edmonton well, I grew up in a neighborhood called Mill Woods. My parents have a lovely bungalow that is right next to the Millwoods golf course. So growing up, we got to go play out there and cross-country ski and snowshoe through the ravine and during the winter and whatnot. And uh, during the summer, you know, I'm not going to lie and say we didn't hop on for a couple of free rounds here and there. So that's that's fun. Give me a little bit about your background in terms of that. Now, you you went to school in Edmonton. You're, it's interesting because you really took on the role of being business owner almost out of the, from the start. I, I mean... Where yeah. did, where did that come from? Where did that entrepreneurial spirit in you live? Was it from your parents? I, I would say my parents have been very much the supportive type. They they're not the kind of parents who put a lot of pressure on me to go in any particular direction. They're the kind of parents that whatever I did, they were proud of me. They supported me. They were happy for what I did. You know, I would almost say that that entrepreneurial spirit kind of comes from my brother, in the sense that we're both incredibly competitive individuals. And my entire childhood growing up was, you know, everything from who can run to the end of the block the fastest to who can make the best sports team to who can get the highest grades to who can win at Street Fighter 2. You know, everything was him versus me and just competing to see who could win the thing that we were doing at the time. And, you know, I remember in high school, I was more of an academic all-star than an athletic all-star. And I was very, very competitive about grades. 
very, very serious about making the grade, getting the scholarship. I actually ended up being valedictorian in my high school, so it, it worked out pretty well. And, um, you know, it's my first job out of university was a sales role. And, you know, I mean, that just that sales is a really good, you know, introduction to having to be an entrepreneur because you really are accountable for your results and you do have to organize yourself a little bit to make those results happen. And that was my first taste of entrepreneurship and being competitive. And uh, I loved it. And it just really launched me into my real estate career. And so it's, you know, I find it interesting that you say that, you know, I'm young relative to, you know, the general population. I'm a 34 year old guy. But in terms of the real estate industry, I am quite old. I've been at it for 11 years because I basically started right out of university. I bought my first house when I was 22 years old, just freshly graduated. And that, that got me going. Now, your brother, is he older, younger than you? Where are you guys in, in age limitation? He's a year and a half younger than me. Right. So you're the older brother and uh, outrunning your younger brother. Well, you know, it's funny. I I was the older brother, but in grade four, he went through a growth spurt and got about six inches on me and I never caught up. So <laughs> you, you hold that against him. And of course, you're competitive. So that is, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's a button. Yeah, exactly. So he's, I mean, he's a big boy. He's 6'2", well over 200 pounds. He's a cop. He's built like a yeah. brick house. Yeah. So I, for those of you listening, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm five foot seven and maybe 170 pounds on a good day. <laughs> That's awesome. So when you went to, uh, you came out of high school, valedictorian, you were uh, kind of an overachiever mindset in, in, the, in your view of the world, supported by your parents without any particular pressure, but I'm sure that they're cornering you and kind of uh, guiding you the way they guide you. Um, you know, you went to university and what was, what was the university journey for you? What was it all about? When I went to university, I, I mean, I had my eyes set on law school. And so again, very competitive program, difficult to get the grade. And so I, I really continued my academic focus throughout university. Um, the other, the other focus I had for academics was I, I wasn't particularly interested in having any sort of a part-time job. And so I just doubled down on academics and made getting scholarships my part-time job, and uh, which, which worked out quite well. I, you know, I, I, I made as much money throughout the, throughout the year as I probably would have in a summer job. So that was, that was kind of how I, I took care of university was just through that scholarship money. And uh, in my first year, I joined a fraternity. And I would say that that was, that was a very, very formative experience for me. Um, obviously, we had a lot of fun and partied. But it's, you know, fraternity is a 50 man organization and we did everything from, you know, we ran a house with 20 rooms in it. We would do large volunteer operations. We, you know, throwing a 400 person party is a big undertaking when you consider, you know, acquiring the right amount of beverages, setting up security, getting a liquor license, promoting and marketing the party, managing ticket sales, creating a budget. Um, you know, at the time, I thought we were just having a lot of fun. But in retrospect, a lot of what I learned in terms of the um, the real hard skills of running a business and the people skills of getting people motivated and directed in the right direction actually just came from being in a fraternity and doing the things that we do in a fraternity. And I really appreciate that experience in retrospect because I, I have an arts degree in philosophy. I didn't take any business education. And so if it wasn't for that, that fraternity experience, I wouldn't have had a taste of being a part of a big organization and doing the things that I needed to do. So did you come out of university with your arts degree or did you expand on, on that educative component with some line of business or where did you go? I, I basically burned myself out in university. I went straight from high school to university and 
high school was three years of putting a lot of pressure on myself to be at peak ad- academic performance. <laughs> University was four more years of that kind of an approach. And, um, you know, I had an opportunity to go to a couple of law schools and I just had enough. It was seven years of hard academic grinding and I took a year off. And that's that's when I got into my first sales role. I was working at a at a gym, the World Health Club, and I was selling gym memberships and doing a little bit of personal training. At that time, that's when I discovered real estate. And I thought, I'm going to I'm going to start experimenting in this real estate world. And it just took off exponentially. It was a really good intersection of what I was good at and what I enjoyed doing. And I never looked back. And so, you know, law school just never came back around because by the time I became a realtor, I was doing better as a second year, third year realtor than my friends who were just finishing up their articling and now starting to be junior, junior lawyers. So what was it about that time, James, that when you look at being a realtor, what was really driving you? Now, you said something that you know you were good at. So you had some sales background and some organizational skills and you know mindset that you develop, developed as part of your paternity. But what was it about being in the world of real estate or being a realtor that you really enjoyed? What was it that kind of lit you up about that? The thing that lit me up about real estate in particular, because I could have taken on any number of sales roles. And as I became a better realtor, I started getting recruited for, you know, like industrial equipment sales and pharmaceutical sales and stuff like that here and there. But the real estate world just fascinates me because there's every layer of complexity I uncover in real estate just reveals a new layer of complexity. And, you know, I've been in this for 11 years and I'm still learning all kinds of fascinating new things about properties the way properties are constructed, the way deals can be created. And so there's complexity enough in the industry added to the fact that the industry is always changing. And so year to year, mortgage rules change. Year to year, construction standards change. Year to year, people have new innovations with technology and marketing and so on and so forth. And so it's, I find it just wildly mentally stimulating to be in this industry because it's a super complicated industry that's continually changing all the time. It's it's 11 years in and I'm not even remotely bored because it, I feel like every year it's something a little bit different and new for me to do. So in terms of the challenges of real estate, if we you know dig in a little bit, you know, the everyday millionaire is really, once again, I always link back and ground back to the fundamental, which is seemingly ordinary people achieving extraordinary results. And the people listening and the listener to these podcasts is linking to, gosh, you know, if James can do it you know, I'm sure I can do it. What is it that he's doing that I can, that I can do? What can I learn from this conversation? So when you dig into what you loved about real estate is the complexity, but if we go deeper than that, when you say what lit you up, were you being, do you find that being a contribution aside from the mental stimulation and the challenge of running the business, are you aware or mindful of the contribution you get to be to your clients you know, certainly there's a revenue component to it. You're you know, building a team, you're running that business in a way that has to be, you know, effective and efficient. So there's a lot of things going on as in your role as a business owner. So as you dig into that, aside from learning about real estate, what are you learning about being a business owner? Yeah, that's a, I mean, that's a great question because you're absolutely right. Like real estate, it feels like a solo game to a lot of people because as a realtor, you know, you're not working in an office environment or, you know, for those of, of you listening who are deal architects, you know, you're a joint venture partner or you're flipping houses, you know, you're typically 
an individual entrepreneur world. You know, a, a lot of the people that we interact with in our world are small business owners. They're not large business owners. But for me, it's always been about that collaboration. And that that's what really, really lights me up is that to make a deal happen or to make a project happen, there's several people that are going to be involved who all have their own win and who all have their own challenges and who all have their own motivations. And for me, what I really like is getting to know someone, getting to know what that is, and then working with them to make something happen that otherwise wouldn't have been possible. And it's that it's that moment of achievement. It's that moment of success. That doing it together feeling for me is just so, so satisfying. Or, you know, you I, I have a client, you know, they want to buy their first investment property and they've They've gone to, you know, like something like a Rain Acres program and learned the basics. And now they're actually out in the field and we collaborate, we work together and I find them exactly what they're looking for. And, you know, there's that moment, maybe it's at the point of closing, maybe it's a year later where they're like, wow, you know what, I can do this and it worked and we did it together. It's a multiplayer game and all those players have to work together towards a common goal. When they come into alignment, everything harmonizes and there's that moment of achievement, like nothing beats that for me. Now, are you, do you wear the hat of quarterback in your business? Are you very hands-on in terms of, I'm going to call the plays on this? Working with your team, I get it. But are you really the source of that result in terms of how the team uh, collaborates in the direction that you're taking the team, the plays that they're making? Are you really the hub of that? Or are you working collaboratively with a management team? How is it that, how, how have you set your business model up in that regard? Yeah. Yeah. So my business model that I am creating is meant to be scalable, but I'm, I'm at the point of my business right now where I'm that guy, I'm the quarterback, I'm setting a vision, I'm setting the corporate culture, I'm setting the tone. You know, I mean, my, my personal calling is really the, the guiding star of where the business is at. My business ethics are what the people on my team have signed up for and they're trying to emulate. The next level that I want to get to and what I'm working towards is building out a set of systems that are grounded in those core values so that my top performers in two to three years can step into a team lead role with a team of their own or a management role, or perhaps, you know, one of them really, really wants to open up the Calgary market. So they can take what we've created in Edmonton, template it, apply it to something like a Calgary market. Um, but for now, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of in the quarterback role still do a lot of client facing. So, you know, I'm, I'm on the field with my guys, you know, I'm, I'm in the trenches with them. And that for me, part of the way that I like to lead my team right now is leading by example, allowing them to emulate what I'm doing. Something as simple as just having a quick chat on the phone with one of my clients or something as simple as them tagging along while I'm doing a listing presentation or listening in while I'm closing a deal with another realtor. The way that we have our office set up, is my office is the central part of our entire workspace. And then I, I don't work at a desk. I actually work at a boardroom table with chairs around it. And then they can come set their laptops down anytime they want and just work in my space to watch me work, hear me work, ask me questions and interact with me throughout the day. And that, that allows me to work really, really closely with my team. You know, to work with the sports analogy, who I am in my team right now, you know, I'm not really, I'm not the manager of the team. I'm not the owner of the team. You know, like I'm, I'm the team captain, you know, I'm, I'm the Sidney Crosby on the ice with the players, passing them pucks and having them pass me pucks back and, and scoring goals together right now. Do you have a fundamental philosophy that you kind of base, whether it be a mission statement, uh, you talked a little bit about calling, but do you have a, a fundamental business philosophy that you have a tendency to ground to or live by? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, our, our corporate statement is live well. 
that's what we build everything we do around. When you're an entrepreneur, you don't really have a peer group. So we started a mastermind group and we actively created a list of about 20 entrepreneurs in that late 20s, early 30s age range at Edmonton, and then selectively went out and recruited some of them to be part of our mastermind group. And we, we meet up once a month and just talk about our business, talk about table topics associated with business development and success. And for me, it was important to kind of go outside of my, my group of friends because as an entrepreneur, I've got a lot of buddies who are entrepreneurs as well. But I find that when I approach strangers, the accountability was a lot higher. And I, I really, really appreciate being a member of that, that mastermind peer group. Um, I find that that's really, really helpful. And then I, one of the things I do in my practice is part of my Sunday night routine is going through my calendar for the week of the previous week, going through a couple of my key tracking measures and just reviewing the week and then having a bit of a journal entry about how the week went, what were my successes, what were my failures. One of the questions I ask myself every single week is what can I eliminate? Um, you know, it actually, it was a it was a bit of a lesson that I learned from your wife, Patrick, when she did a presentation at Rain where her, she put forward her keep it simple idea. I believe it was keep it simple for Stephanie, the kiss. Yes. And, uh, you know, I, that, that, that really spoke to me because I thought, okay, how much clutter in my week and in my schedule and in my calendar can be, can be removed? What am I doing every single day that maybe doesn't really need to be there? And so I, I always just think about what can I do to simplify? What, what one piece of clutter can I eliminate from my, my weekly routine that doesn't necessarily need to be there? Let me ask you this, you know, you talk about live well, and I'm going to go back to, you know, conversation and, you know, that whole context of live well that you have with your team, having those conversations with your team in your meetings and part of the agenda of live well, you know, what have you, what have you done this week or recently to live well? And it's kind of a, a great anchor. And then another, you know, in, in the other part of the conversation where you were talking about it's not really so much about the goal and I'm going to paraphrase or translate because you know, there's a, there is that saying that it's not about the goal. It's about who you have to become to achieve the goal. And, and it's in the becoming it's in a, in it's, in it's, it's becoming who you need to become to achieve the goal. That's really the goal who you have to become. That's really what you kind of have based your own philosophy on and, and how you approach your business is Focusing not so much on the outcome, but who you have to become to achieve the result that you're trying to achieve. Would that be an accurate statement, James? That's an excellent paraphrase, yeah. So when we go forward in terms of learning and understanding, you know, the defining yourself, are you are you reading on an ongoing basis? Is is reading part of your daily routine, weekly routine? How do you go through and and learn about yourself or are you really just kind of going by your gut, your intuition, if you will, and trying stuff, you know, seeing what, what's working, what's not working. There's always a degree of that, but how much of it is it that you're picking up and learning from outside and bringing in and how much of it is intuition? Maybe that's the question. So yeah, reading is a big part of, of my week. Now, full disclosure, I'm not, uh, a paper guy, I'm an audiobook guy. So I, I have audiobooks on the go and I really absorb information well that way. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of reading, I I try to well, I I do have one self-development book and then one book that's kind of a treat, and then a self-development book and then a book that's a treat. So I I mean I personally I like fiction, I like history books, I like science fiction, and 
So I'll go one for one. So I'll read a, you know, I'll read a business development book and then a fun book. But yeah, I mean, absolutely. Like I, I really rely on my peer group to give me suggestions on what is impacting them in a positive way. So I very often ask, you know, what book are you reading right now? Or what book did you read recently that impacted you, you know, let's say on time management or on being a better leader or being a better manager? And I, I pick books that way. You know, oftentimes I will get a really great suggestion and, you know, somebody will be, they'll say, read chapter six. The rest of the book is kind of fluff, but chapter six is where it's at. So I, I definitely, definitely like to rely on books to take tidbits out of. And I find that, you know, when it, when it comes to reading these business books, very few of them are a, a full spectrum blueprint for what you need to do with, with your life. Oftentimes, you know, I can read an entire book and I'll get one key takeaway from it that I'll choose to implement into my practice. So it's, it's all about taking it all in and then thinking about how what that person is saying fits for me and then picking the things out of it that kind of just feel right for what I need at the time. And, you know, almost reading the book with an intention. If it's a time management book, you know, sometimes my challenge with time management is just the simple fact of self-discipline. Time management is a lot of common sense stuff. But if you don't do what you're supposed to do, it doesn't work. So, you know, I read a time management book over the summer when I was, you know, I found myself in a phase where for one reason or another, I was procrastinating a little bit more than usual. So I really focused on the part of the book that talked about mindset, that talked about keeping yourself motivated. And I found that that just triggered more thoughts for me because it anchored me back. They, you know, they said, you're more likely to be self-disciplined when you're anchored in in your why or what your your mission is, if it really matters to you. And so that caused me to go back and reflect and just think, okay, you know, it, it was a really busy month and we were doing a ton of deals. It was, you know, it was the summertime. So it's a high volume time for our industry. And I was losing touch with, you know, where we were at with Live Well and just focusing on the deals. And so I just kind of took a weekend, settled in, did a bit of thinking, did a bit of journaling, reconnected with where we were at. And I found that I was a lot more effective for several weeks after that. And again, it's kind of common sense. You know, I mean, I, I could, if somebody came to me and asked me for advice on why they were procrastinating, I, I'd probably say that too. But sometimes just an external source reminding you of it can be all the difference. And I find that's, that's oftentimes what a really good book will do for me. Do you find yourself being reflective and very intentional about how you're being as a leader? Yeah, I, like I said, you know, my, my Sunday night self-reflection has been a big part of my practice since, well, probably my mid twenties, actually, I think it was 27 when I started doing that. And it, you know, I mean, it, it constantly evolves over time. You know, I went through a phase where I actually, I created a meeting agenda for myself where there were seven points of self-reflection that I wanted to go through every single Sunday. And it's been as, it's been as free form as I'll just journal for half an hour, whatever comes out, comes out and everything in between. But, you know, I, I always try to think about what I'm doing, whether or not it's working and what I can be doing differently. And one of my, one of my favorite business ideas or sayings or, or whatever you want to call it is the idea that a business starts to stagnate when the reason that you do things is because you've always done them. And there's no other better reason. It's, you know, you ask the staff, you ask yourself, why are we doing it this way? And people say, well, that's just the way we do it without any critical reflection as to why that's the way that it should be done given the current circumstances of the business. So one of the questions I try to ask myself and my staff as often as possible is, 
okay, we're doing things in this way and we've done it for about, you know, eight months, but it doesn't really seem like it's applicable anymore. So, you know, what do you think about changing it up a little bit? And without that critical reflection, you know, I find, or I, I think that there would be a lot more stagnation because you can end up with systems that are no longer necessary because that system applied to where your business was at two years ago. It doesn't apply to where the business is at now. Okay. So like I say, we're going to, there's lots of topics I want to talk to you about James, because you've done a lot of things and I've known you for a few years. So I know some of your story and let's just get into some quicker questions. Tell me something. What's, uh, what's one of your biggest accomplishments? I would say one of my biggest accomplishments for me mm-hmm. is just the relationships I have with my friends. That's probably one of my proudest accomplishments. The relationships I have with my friends, the relationships I have with my family, you know, that's, that's one of the ways that I measure how happy I am in life, how successful I am in life is the quality of connection I have with the individuals that matter most to me. So, I mean, it's, it's not a quantitative accomplishment by any stretch of the imagination, but that's one of the things that I have in my life that I, it makes me feel accomplished and that I'm, that I'm the most proud of. Now you did a, you went on a cool journey. I think it was a couple of years ago now, but you kind of left Edmonton. You went out and hung out in beautiful uh, Whistler, British Columbia, and you lived on the ski hill and did business from the ski hill. And I know that was a stretch for you. It was something that you wanted to try and achieve, see where you're at. How did that work out for you? I was an unbelievable experience. You know, I, I'm definitely not going to call it a once in a lifetime experience because as soon as as soon as the the superstars on my team step into a management role, I'm going to be right back on the slopes for another season. But yeah, I mean, it was terrific. I'd always wanted to be a ski bum, but I didn't want to put my business on hold to become a ski bum. So, you know, I spent two years really focusing on building systems that would run themselves while I was away. And then I, I took the plunge, took that sabbatical and test drove being in a different city and running my business for five months. And I, I think it went great. You know, I had a couple of buyer's agents who were able to service my clients. I had an absolutely unbelievable assistant who managed everything while I was away. And, you know, I found that with three to five hours per day on average, I was able to really keep my business running. So, you know, a 20 to 25 hour work week in general. And I mean, some days when the snow was good, I'd work zero hours. Some days if I had taken a bad fall the day before, you know, I wasn't going to go out on the hill. So I would uh, take that day off and work. But it it was terrific. And, you know, I found that with the systems that I had in place, it was it was quite doable. For me, I think one of the limitations was that that was that allowed my business to be in a stasis. My business didn't grow. It didn't evolve. It didn't really change. It just did what it was able to do at the level that it was at. And so, you know, our sales volume kind of just plateaued. You know, I didn't create any new marketing initiatives. I didn't create any new systems. There was no growth or creativity in the business. But the big the big win for me and the big learning and the big success for that was that I knew that with that amount of effort, I could sustain my business. And that has me really excited for the future because right now I'm in Edmonton, boots on the ground, staying focused, growing. And when it reaches the next level that I'm satisfied with, I know that I can keep it in stasis and that it'll do very well on its own while I'm away. You know, even in just answering this question, I think the thought that came to mind is that maybe the next challenge for me is seeing if on my next sabbatical, whether my business can grow without me because I've built into the architecture and the fabric of the business, the ability for it to grow without me needing to be the one to help it grow. What you just said is really interesting for me. You know, Stephen Covey, for example, likes to say that you've either 
bought yourself a job or you're a business owner. For some, that could sound a bit extreme, but for now, let's just work with that definition, which when you dig deeper means you're a business owner when you can actually step away from the business and in your absence, it continues to operate and actually grow sales and its profitability. So in other words, I guess having the system, the policies, the vision, the team in place to actually drive the business forward is how I take that and what I've learned over my years of business. So what I'm hearing that you've discovered for yourself is that because you weren't in the office, so to speak, you couldn't be in, you really didn't have the source to drive your vision and provide the compelling reason for your team to take action in a way that would actually grow the business while you were away, you know, top line profitability, et cetera. So would that be a fair statement? Yeah, I would say that during the the Whistler sabbatical, there wasn't that compelling reason for growth. And I would say that that was, that was at a point in my business where the staff that I had were perfectly happy to do what they needed to do, but they, they weren't as invested as my current staff are in growing the business. Um, the current team that I have, you know, they're excited to take this right to the next level. You know, I've already got people who are excited about expanding into other cities and I would say one of the biggest learnings I had with that last sabbatical and in between then and now was being a lot more specific and intentional with my recruiting process and recruiting people not only that could do the job, but people that were really, truly in alignment and, and vibrating with my, my vision and my mission for where I wanted the business to be so that not only can they do the job in the business, but they're just as committed to working on the business and helping the business turn into something really special as I am. So you buy your first property at 22 years old and you started investing in real estate and you're, you know, you've grown your portfolio much larger than that over the, the years that you've been investing in real estate. What really set you on the path of saying, I'm going to grow this portfolio? Now you joined as a RAIN member many years ago now. I, I, I don't recall, is it been 10 years? Yeah. 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 I think 2017 will be my 10 year anniversary. Yeah, that's cool. So you joined Rain. You had bought. You'd already owned or had just bought a first property. Now, what kind of inspired you to number one join Rain? And was there a I don't know a fork in the road that you took that really took you on the path called investing in real estate uh, beyond being a realtor? Well, I would say when I was taking my first, well, I can't call it acres because back then it was called Quick Start. But the first real estate Rain course that I took, Don Campbell. That was back in the days where Don Campbell ran the entire event all by himself. It was just the Don show for two days straight. And I, you know, I found him to be a very inspiring and compelling guy. And at the time he presented Rain's 3817 plan. And, you know, we talked about personal beliefs, uh, which is, you know, kind of your vision for how you want your life to be after investing in real estate. And I, you know, I I I was all in. I thought I already like investing in real estate. This is really interesting to me. And I would say the the game changer at that event for me was learning not only what a joint venture was, but how to do a joint venture. Cause I'd never even heard of a joint venture until that point. I had just been, I just assumed that everybody was doing it with their own money. I didn't realize that how business partnerships work or what a business partnership needed to be in the context of buying property. And that was kind of like the, you know, the, the turbo charge to what I was doing in real estate. And so, you know, knowing what I knew about sales, knowing that I had the energy and the inclination to, to grow, 
you know, I went back to the office, put together my joint venture package and just got to work. Now, back then, I definitely wasn't as in touch with, you know, things like my vision and my calling and really what I wanted my lifestyle to look like and what I what I wanted to have in my life to make it a really well-rounded life. You know, back then I was young and impulsive and I wanted to do something that was really big. And just, just the idea of hitting a big milestone was in and of itself for me, what I wanted to go for. So when I was 22 years old, I set a goal of having 30 properties by the time I was 30. So, you know, I called it my 30 by 30 plan and I, I thought it sounded really cool and it had a nice ring to it. And I went for it all in trying to acquire as much property as possible. And, um, I mean, I ended up hitting that goal, but by the time I had hit it, I realized that I added some properties to my portfolio that I bought for the sake of adding another number to that total of 30 without necessarily thinking about whether or not it was actually contributing to my overall lifestyle and whether or not it was contributing to my overall happiness. Cause you know, I own some properties that were time sucks, you know, as they were the dogs in my portfolio. So that was once I hit that 30 by 30 goal, that was the point at which I really started thinking about how and when and why I should be adding properties to my portfolio. And that was also the point at which I was ready to step up from the single family game into the multifamily game. So I kind of rejigged my criteria for adding properties to my portfolio, changed it over to multifamily and started creating conglomerations of investors to start acquiring multifamily properties. And then, you know, from ages 30 until now, my, my business partners and I have ended up acquiring 12 multifamily apartment buildings. And the last one I bought was about 12 months ago. And I, you know, I, I think that at this point, I'm pretty much good on property acquisition. The more I touch point into live well, the more I think about my lifestyle, you know, I've really started thinking about how much asset I need and how much annual cash flow I really need to do the things that I want to do. And at this point in my portfolio growth, I don't need more property to do that. In fact, what I really need is less property because, you know, more property comes with more time commitment, comes with more management. So my game plan for the next five years until I'm 40 is to take all of the cash flow, all of the surplus revenue and just put it into paying down the mortgages on the properties I like. And then systematically over the next five years, as the timing is right, I'm going to sell off the properties that for whatever reason aren't a great fit for me until I have a really nice tight quality portfolio of properties that are more or less debt free. You know, that's a, I think that's a, a big lesson that lots of real estate investors learn is that it isn't necessarily about quantity. It really is about quality of real estate that you own. I think you make a really good point when you're only driven by a, a number of, you know, a number of properties as opposed to the profitability, the effectiveness, how that even runs as a business you start to make different decisions. And obviously that's kind of where you're at and what you've got to. And so now you have a plan in place to get more efficient, uh, scale differently and start buying down some debt to increase cash flow. That's, that's, that's an approach that you can, that will gain with the maturity of your portfolio. Absolutely. You know, I mean, when I think about when I started in real estate, you know, that was 16 year old competitive James just dialed up to a new challenge. You know, I saw, I, I saw people like, Oh, you have a portfolio of 25. I can get to 26. You have a portfolio of 29. I can make mine 30, 30 by 30. Can anybody else hit that number? I don't think so, but I can. And it, it became about the competitiveness with myself and just the competitiveness of hitting that lofty goal. And I didn't really think about, 
you know, I mean, do I need 30 properties to be happy? You know, it wasn't about that. It was about, can I hit that mark of 30? It was, you know, it was a challenge. It was a goal. It got me really excited. But, you know, as I've become more mature and as I've learned more about lifestyle and property, that's, that's really where this genesis of this live well mentality came from. Because the question I would have asked myself if I did it all over again is how many properties and what types of properties do I need to live well? Not, can I get to 30 properties? Because the goal now is, like I said earlier in the conversation, to have the lifestyle that I want, to be the kind of person that I want to be. And that goal doesn't have a number of properties attached to it. When you define success, I know that earlier you talked about success and your happiness is, you know, a lot around the relationship, uh, a relationship that you build and the people that you have in your life. What else do you use to define success when you reflect on how you're feeling about your life? You know, I still, to build on the last comment I made, there, there still is, you know, competitive James in there where I really like to set a target and then I really like to hit that target. That's always been a part of who I am and I think it's always going to be a part of who I am. And so, you know, year over year, I create a target. I mean, we just went through our 2018 planning. I set a revenue goal for the company that is the highest one yet, broke it down into quarters, broke it down into weeks got the team buy-in, made sure everybody has a game plan. And now we're going to start working that plan and making sure that we hit that goal. And, you know, for me, success is about hitting my personal goal for me based on what I want to accomplish in a year. And, uh, you know, I mean, that's still always going to be a part of who I am. My overall happiness, like if I don't hit that goal, I'm not going to go into a dark cave for a month and be into a, a well of deep depression. But ultimately, you know, if, if my ability to do real estate evaporated, or the real estate industry changed so dramatically that realtors weren't even necessary anymore, you know, not having that success as a realtor wouldn't impact my happiness in life. It wouldn't impact my success as a person. You know, like I said, ultimately it's derived in being the kind of person I want to be. But I will say that, you know, I like, I like the competitiveness of setting a goal for myself and, and trying to achieve it. And that translates into other areas of my life as well. You know, I mean, I really like going to a CrossFit class with my buddies and there's, you know, there's that friendly competition of who can post the biggest number in the workout of the day. Or, you know, I've done lots of triathlons and marathons. You know, it's always, it's always about running that marathon a few minutes faster than the last time you ran it. You know, that kind of stuff really does it for me. So you've had some successes, you've had some great accomplishments. What's been your biggest failure that kind of turned out to be a success? Well, I would say, you know, I would say probably one of my biggest failures that I've had would be a, a lot of the first, especially the first 15 or so properties I bought have all turned into pretty big flops. And that was because, you know, I was buying them for the sake of getting closer to that number of 30 and not necessarily buying them because they were smart buys. Uh, I bought a lot of properties early in my career because they were cheap and because on paper, the cash flow looked really good without really thinking about the neighborhood they were in or the tenant profile they would attract. And so every single month, every single year, I get more and more and more focused on how that property is going to turn into a time commitment and how that property is going to fit into a lifestyle. Because again, that's, that's really what it's all about. It's not about, you know, does it cash flow $500 on paper or does it cash flow $525 a month on paper? That $25 difference isn't going to make my decision as to whether or not I'm going to buy that property. The time commitment, 
how it's going to fit into my lifestyle and how sustainable it's going to be over time to manage it with, with the minimal amount of effort. That's what's guiding my buying decisions now, because that's what feeds into that lifestyle. So I'm going to, you know, this may put you on the spot a little bit, but I want to ask you the question you work, you know, you've now in your own world transacted, you know, hundreds of deals for yourself, but you know, probably thousands of deals for other real estate investors and home buyers, et cetera. But in the world of investors, is there a, as you're working with investors, is there a common, I'm going to, I'm going to say mistake. Is there a, or a, is there a common myth or oversight that you see people, a trap that they fall into that, that is common? Like, is there a top three, for example, of the things that people do that you go, gosh, this is going to be a train wreck if I don't help these people put in a correction? Yeah. Uh, Love that question. And I mean, my, I would say my number one, you know, almost number one and number two, because it's such a big mistake, is people who chase cash flow, people who chase yield, people who just think that cash flow is the be all and end all of a real estate investment and will downgrade their standards or, or downgrade the quality of property or downgrade the location or take a property that needs more repairs and maintenance just so that they can get another 30 to $50 a month on cash flow. And I mean, maybe that's the biggest mistake for me because that was the mistake I made early in my career. And I, you know, I've seen firsthand through my own personal experience, the negative repercussions of making decisions that way. But I'll tell you right now, I mean, if you buy a marginal property in a poor state of repair in a marginal location with a very, you know, with a tenant profile that turns over more often and with a vacancy period that lasts longer, those properties, typically are really cheap on their sticker price. And because they're cheap on their sticker price, they typically post bigger cash flow numbers on paper. But then the actual experience of owning them is way more time consuming and way more money put into repairs and maintenance and, um, and tenant turnover. And again, I'm going to re-anchor myself to that live well. The property acquisition process needs to start from how it's going to fit into your lifestyle, not chasing that cash flow. And to build that out, kind of into the numbers conversation, when you take a holistic picture of how a property can create return on investment for you, when you use leverage to buy a property at 20% down, that's a five to one multiplier on whatever market growth is. So if the market appreciates at 3% in a given year, which you know for people in, in stable communities is normal for Vancouver, that seems like nothing. But let's say, let's call it 3%. If you have 3% growth using 20% down, that gives you a 5x multiplier. That's 15% ROI for what is considered generally very, very modest growth for an average real estate market. You know, if you're paying down your mortgage, let's just use an example. Again, this is going to be napkin math, kind of rounded math for everybody. But if you buy a $500,000 property at 20% down, that means you have a $100,000 down payment. Your blended interest and principal payment should result in you paying down somewhere between eight and $10,000 a year in mortgage principal. So again, before all of you, you know, math people out there get too upset, like the, the, the real rough calculation is your mortgage pay down is eight to 10% per year. So when I see, you know, the ballpark of 15% on market appreciation coming out of an investment, eight to 10% coming out of mortgage pay down, people who are getting bent out of shape over 50, 60, $70 a month in cash flow. Let's call it 50 so it's easy math. $50 a month in cash flow times 12 months is $600 per year over your investment of $100,000. You know, you're you're getting bent out of shape over 
of a return on investment that sacrifices the security of your 15% on the market and your 8 to 10% on mortgage pay down. So for me, it's, it's missing the forest for the trees because people who get so bent up on cash flow end up buying properties that are so time consuming that you don't hang on to them for the long haul to take advantage of the mortgage pay down and the market appreciation. Whereas if you just take a little bit less cash flow, you're not really losing very much on your total global ROI, but what you are getting is less headache, something that fits in your lifestyle, and something that allows you to really maximize and take advantage of that market growth and mortgage pay down, which are the two most powerful drivers when buying a piece of property. So this goes back to the, you know, some of the conversation around it is really about quality as opposed to quantity, number one. Secondly, you know, the question of buying price as opposed to buying a quality property. So if you're only focused on the sticker price and not really focused on the quality of the property, how it fits into your lifestyle, how easy it is to manage, how easy it is to tenant, then of course you're going to run into a different set of problems and you have to put a value on that as well. Would that be kind of a, I guess, the Coles notes recap of what I'm hearing you say, James? That's definitely what I'm getting at. People often talk about return on investment, but I mean, some, and I've never done this, but something that would be super interesting is creating a real estate return metric that breaks your real estate investment down into dollars per hour, where, you know, you add up the amount of money you think that real estate is going to make you over a five year period. And you add up the amount of hours that it's going to take to nurture and manage your investment over that five year period. You know, I can almost guarantee that that cheaper property is going to translate into a way, way, way lower dollar per hour, even though it will show a quote unquote higher return on investment or a higher cash flow. So you've been a RAIN member for almost 10 years. And why have you been a member for 10 years? I mean, some people would say, well, James Canal, he's a realtor and he's, you know, he's selling real estate and what is it about Rain, the real estate investment network, that kind of keeps you coming back? Well, I, I mean, the thing I like about Rain is I find that when you're early on in your Rain experience, the Rain, Rain stands for Real Estate Investment Network, and when you start out, it's all about the REI, the real estate investing portion. You know, you're learning, you're going to power weekends, you're going to extensive courses, you're getting um, monthly workshop presentations from experienced members who have a lot of knowledge to share. Then there, there hits this point where it becomes about the end, which is the network. Because yes, there's opportunities for me to further my realtor business, but I mean, the amount of deals that I've done just because, you know, I, I saddled up to somebody and chatted them up over coffee. And I mean, I mean, deals as an investor, not deals as a realtor, or because somebody knew somebody who made an introduction. I mean, that's huge. You know, that, that's, that place is a, a buzzing hive of activity where people that are interested in doing deals and they're sourcing deals, they're creating opportunities and they're sharing up ideas on how those opportunities can go like that. That to me is huge. And I think the other part is just the support network. You know, like I said at the beginning of the conversation, when you're an entrepreneur, you know, especially in like the real estate context, not only you're an entrepreneur, you're, you're a, a solopreneur, you're an individual getting started on a small business. And so most people, you know, maybe you get some support from your spouse or, you know, every so often you talk to your realtor, your inspector, your property manager, but for the most part, there's no 
ongoing support network where you get to have that, you know, lunchroom talk or that water cooler talk or whatever it is where you can compare notes on what you're doing, share challenges, and just be in the same space with the same people with the same interests at the same time. We're all working towards a similar goal. You know, everybody has a similar goal of doing the best they can with their portfolio. And in in day-to-day life, you know, the average person working, say, for the government or working for a large construction company, real estate talk isn't part of that day-to-day experience. So I find that the, the networking where you can connect with people doing the same thing and compare notes on what it feels like, that's huge. You know, I mean, just being able to say, hey, you know what, I'm self-managing this property and it's a bit of an older property and wouldn't you know it, the furnace went out on Christmas Eve and it was that that was a challenge and it was it was a bummer and so on and so forth. Being able to tell that story to people that get it or being able to tell that story to someone who's who can say, well, yeah, that happened to me last Christmas and have a laugh at it and know that it's okay to put in that extra grind when you're a business owner, that's invaluable as well. So what do you see as the difference between, you know, RAIN members or real estate investors, either way, that are successful versus those who aren't? Is it is it a shift of mindset? Um, it, what do you see in the mindset that makes a difference? Or what really, is there, a, is there an underlying consistent thing that you see in real estate investors who are successful versus those who get stuck or can't seem to take action. What, what is it for you that you've spotted over the years, James? I, I would say definitely mindset. Um, and it, the mindset comes from two places. Uh, you know, the first place the mindset comes from is just, you know, if somebody, if you don't have a reason for doing something, you're a lot less likely to do it. Um, real estate investing is time consuming. It's complex and requires a lot of education to do correctly. And, you know, there's, that can't be understated. It's not like you're buying, you know, Google stocks where you send your money to an online um, RRSP account and you click I want Google stocks and now you have Google stocks. That's about as hard as it is to invest in Google. Buying a piece of real estate, owning it, managing it, and putting tenants in it, that is a whole other level of complexity that's time consuming. And, you know, it, it takes a little more gumption to do it. And so, if you don't have a reason for doing it, it's tough to get going on that. So, you know, I think that's why it's really important for somebody to touch point on their why or really understand their core values or, you know, from my perspective, really have a firm handle on what parts of their lifestyle are important to them and how real estate is going to enhance that. Um, I mean, the second thing that you need from a mindset perspective is, and I said the word once before, is just a little bit of gumption. You just got to have a little bit of, you, you got to, you got to just jump, you know? I mean, I've, I've heard one older real estate investor say real estate deals are like the bus. Well, you know, one comes by every 10 minutes. And that's a fact. My entire career, there's a new deal, you know, as fast as I can count them. But you're never going to go anywhere if you don't get on the bus. And so there has to just be that element of being willing to take the jump. Um, you know, I mean, we call it analysis paralysis and RAIN, where people have been RAIN members for years and years and years. And they reread the books and re-go to the courses and analyze a bazillion deals, but they just don't make one happen. So there's that something inside of a person where they just say, all right, deep breath, I'm going to do it. I'm going to take a plunge. I'm going to make some action happen. And that 
I think those are the two key ingredients. And I think one feeds to the other. I mean, the stronger your connection to your why is, the more your desire to take the jump is going to overcome your fear to take the jump. How important is having a team, given what you see and the work that you do and the work that you've seen other realtors do, you know, if you were giving a message to a, a real estate investor, investor listening in, how important is it to have a team and who do you, who do you give guidance? You know, what guidance do you give to people to say, you've got to have these people on your team and who are those people? Like, I don't mean names, but I mean profession. Yeah. What, what are the, what are the seats on the bus that need to get filled? I'd say it's critical. I mean, there are certain roles that, you know, real estate investors can do themselves. Um, but there are some roles that you just absolutely need team members to do. And part of the advantage of having a team is that, you know, I mean, for a lot of real estate investors, you know, it's somewhere between their first and their 10th deal. If you have a team that's experienced, you know, this is their thousands deal or their 5,000th deal. And so that experience speaks volumes because if your deal happens to be the one where the one in 500 exceptional circumstance pops up, you want somebody who's dealt with that super out there exceptional circumstance at least several times so that that bump in the road gets smoothed out and everything works out okay. I mean, the other advantage of having a team is the best of the best not only know how to fix problems when they arise, but they understand how to proactively set the stage to avoid heading in a direction that would have a problem in the first place. That's why, that's why when you work with really, really exceptional professionals, everything just seems like it works, no problem. And it's like, well, that person didn't really do a heck of a lot of work because nothing went wrong and they didn't have to fix anything. But the fact of the matter is that professional did everything so right that they proactively steered you away from a problem before it ever even had an opportunity to come up. And that's, that to me is the value and the, the difference between a good professional and an absolutely exceptional professional. You know, that's why, and just, just a little Edmonton shout out, that's why like, you know, a guy like Connor McDavid accelerates from zero to top speed almost effortlessly. You know, I mean, he makes it look effortless, but there's so much that goes into doing that perfectly. You know, any other professional, the deal looks like it went together effortlessly, but there's so much that goes into making it effortless. So I would say, I mean, for the most part, most real estate investors are going to need a good realtor on the team. You know, there are people that will source their own deals or do off-market deals or so on and so forth. But at some point, and for most people, finding and analyzing deals is time-consuming to the point where it just makes more sense to have somebody who is an expert at it do it for you and present you with the best of the best deals. And the vast majority of real estate investors will want that. There's obviously the people out there that are into sourcing their own deals, but if you're not already a deal sourcing and analyzing expert, you don't actually have to pay anything for a realtor. The seller pays the realtor. So for most people, it makes sense to outsource that. You can't get away without a lawyer. A lawyer has to do the final transaction in exchange of money for keys on the deal. I would say that, you know, a good home inspector is very, very critical because a home inspector that doesn't know what they're doing is going to miss things. And the way that uh, the licensing and insurance for home inspectors wor works is that it's very, very difficult to go back on a home inspector after the fact to try to get them to take liability for an error and omission that they made. So you know, it's it's better to just have one that you know is going to catch everything. Your lender needs to be tip top, whether that be a mortgage broker or a banker. I would say that that is a very, very critical part. 
especially if your intention is to grow large, because an inexperienced mortgage broker or banker who doesn't really deal with investors will be focused on getting you this one deal right now without setting up your portfolio and your financial picture to allow you to grow and buy more and more and more properties. So that one's, that one's really essential. If renovating is part of your game plan, a good contractor is necessary. Uh, but if, if it's not part of your game plan, having a good handyman is necessary because a handyman is a very, very different person than a contractor. A handyman is the guy that doesn't mind showing up to do a little bit of tinkering. And the, the better the quality of your property, the smaller the jobs that are going to be necessary are going to be and the more important handyman is going to be. And then if, if you choose to outsource, a property manager is going to be essential. You know, I mean, tenanting is, in my opinion, one of the most important parts of the entire process. A good tenant will make your year amazing. A bad tenant will make your year an absolute nightmare. And having a property manager that can select those good tenants and then enforce policies and rules consistently and fairly in a way that results in the tenants still having a good experience. I mean, that's huge. When you're, when you're in the buy and hold game, your tenants are your customers. They're the ones paying the revenue into your business. And I mean, great businesses have great customer management. Poor businesses have poor customer management. And then I think the final person on a team is, for me anyways, is going to be the bookkeeper slash accounting team. A bookkeeper you know, puts all of the receipts into the spreadsheets and then an accountant makes sure that you're being the most tax efficient business person you possibly can be. You know, Every year I hand over my stuff to my accountant from my bookkeeper with an idea in mind of what my tax bill is going to be. And every year my tax bill ends up being thousands of dollars less than I expected it to be because my accountant has come up with some creative way to restructure where certain expenses are going to be put. And it just amazes me how much accountants, you know, earn their keep with the money that they save you. And, you know, some people like, like putting information into QuickBooks or spreadsheets. I personally don't. And so my bookkeeper is my savior every single month when I hand over my folder of receipts and we review, you know, our profit and loss statements. So I, I, I'd say those are probably the, the main people you're going to want on your team. You know, I'm going to add one more. I would say that for, for those of you that have a serious partner or spouse out there, the final person on your team and one of the most critical person to have on your team is your spouse. Because if, you're, if your spouse is not into what you're doing or they don't believe that buying real estate is part of the game plan, having that negative energy surrounding your business activity at home is just going to completely undermine your whole system and make it very, very difficult. So, you know, if that, if your spouse isn't on board, I would almost work towards getting that to be part of your foundational piece of getting your business started before you actually go looking for houses. Because, you know, I've, I've worked with so many clients where there's, you know, an impulsive husband and a, and an unhappy wife or, you know, a wife that goes to acres and is super excited and starts going house shopping and the husband is not comfortable with the investment yet. So having that partner support is huge, 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 huge. And, you know, I'd say that's probably step one before you start building anything else on your team. You know, when I'm coaching and of course from stage, I'm often talking about creating an environment for success. So part of the environment for success, of course, we believe that rain as a community is a great environment that supports success. And then the other part of that, of course, is to your point, is having your significant other is really the environment that you put yourself in that creates or helps you generate the success and achieve the goals that you're looking to achieve. And having that environment is incredibly important. And so 
it's like you running your team. You've created an environment. I don't want to say running your team, but you've created an environment for your team to succeed. You know, your weekly meetings, your live well philosophy, the mission that you have for your clients is generating a great environment. And, and I'm a big uh, proponent of focusing on the environment that you're creating for your team, for your clients, in order for them to actually excel and do a great job and playing their position, whatever that position is, the better and the more supportive the environment, the, the greater and, and bigger success that you're going to have. As well as on the ca- in the case of a team, they want to come to work, right? They want to come to the office. They want to hang out with the rest of the team in an environment that's fun and cool. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, there is nothing worse than having a workplace that isn't fun and having coworkers that, you know, you wouldn't otherwise want to spend time with. Um, you know, I selectively recruit people who are all very similar in mindset, very tied into the vision. And, you know, it, one of the things that's the most satisfying for me is when, you know, I just kind of out of the corner of my ear, hear a little side chatter about how a couple of the staff members went out on a double date or how they went to the gym together or how they're planning on hanging out on the weekend. You know, I mean, that to me lets me know that the office culture has transcended the workplace and has become a part of what's what they're all about. And that's I just love that. So you're a business owner, you're a real estate investor, you're a realtor. Not all days are good. Sometimes, you know, crap hits the fan. What's your mindset? How do you deal with the challenges, some of them, or we'll call the catastrophes that might happen? What's your mindset around those kinds of things that unfold in day-to-day business or in in life? How do you handle that? What's your self-talk? Yeah, I mean, for me with real estate, I... One of my mantras is just have faith in the system. You know, I mean, it, so to, to break my business down a little more specifically, I mean, my business at the end of the day is a sales funnel. You meet a certain number of people that results in a certain number of phone calls, that results in a certain number of meetings, that results in a certain number of active buyers and listings, that results in a certain number of offers, that results in a certain number of closed deals. It's a funnel. It's a pipeline. I mean, we could have a whole other podcast chat about the specifics and mechanics of managing a sales funnel. And so once you build a system that's based on true numbers and true conversion ratios, when one deal falls apart, it doesn't become this catastrophic event because, you know, I don't base my feelings of how my day is going on that deal. I base my feelings on whether or not we're working the system. And, you know, I know that as long as we work the system, the numbers are going to work out. So because for every catastrophic failure of a deal, for every time-consuming client, There's another client that literally calls us up out of the blue, tells us they want to buy something, and then puts an offer on the first thing that they see and removes conditions smoothly within five days. You know, if we didn't have faith in the system, we wouldn't have the perspective to know that, you know, there's more easy ones than there are hard ones, and the hard ones aren't really worth getting too worked up over. So, you know, I mean, I... And that, that, that's come a lot with experience. I, you know, I remember early on in my career, a deal wouldn't work out and I'd have a bad weekend about it. Now, if a deal doesn't work out, I'm like, okay, that deal not working out is part of the numbers that we accounted for. And we knew that X number of deals wasn't going to work out. And it's just checking another not worked out deal off the list right next to the column of worked out deals. Okay. So James, we're going to wind down this. I mean, uh, there's so many directions we can take these conversations when you have somebody like yourself that is diverse in their business experience and in their life experience. But as we wind down, I like to have a little bit of fun just in a rapid fire question segment that we do. 
Yeah. Are you ready for this? Let's do it. Okay, let's do it. What's your favorite swear word, pal? F-bomb. Or can I say fuck? I just said it. Oh, you just said it, yeah. F-bomb is a popular one, but it's not the only one. What's your favorite quote? Do you have one? I'm not really a quotes kind of guy. You know, I have a few mantras, like my have faith in the system, but, you know, I yeah, I don't have a specific quote that I touch base to. If it wasn't this profession, what other profession would you like to attempt? You know, I, I would probably, probably be in the fitness industry. I'd love to own a gym one day. And I, you know, I, I, there's a very good possibility that once, once mogul has reached a point of maturity that I'm not necessary, I'll probably open a gym just for cup, just for fun. Cool. If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you hit the gates? Right this way, sir. On a scale of one to 10, how weird are you? Nine and a half. Really? Eh? I don't, I don't think you're weird, but most people think they are. What are you not very good at? Singing. <laughs> okay, got it. Uh, glad. So don't don't serenade us. What's the most impactful book that you've read or that you would tend to gift? Oh, Eat That Frog by Brian Tracy. That book, you know, I don't use the phrase lightly, but that book did 100% change my life when I read it in my early 20s. Eat That Frog, Brian Tracy. Got it. Room, desk, or your car? What do you clean first? Desk. Are you pretty orderly in your life anyways? Are you pretty, you know, together that way or, or are you a clutter guy? No, I'm, I, I'm almost on the end of the spectrum. I do, I do what I call productive procrastination. I'm the kind of guy where I'm like, you know, even when I was in high school, oh, I can't get my homework started until I clean my room. Mm, you're that guy. Okay. Got it. That's fine. What's your favorite tune? Do you have one? Uh, Island in the Sun by Weezer. Favorite movie? Pulp Fiction. Really? Pulp Fiction? Yeah. That movie came out. You must have seen that when you were 15. You know what? That that movie came out and I, I tried to convince my mom to rent it and we were watching it together. And um, about 30 seconds into the monologue in the opening scene where he's talking about the acts that were performed on the dude's wife, my mom ejected the cassette and was like, <laughs> you are not allowed to watch this. So. I didn't actually get to see Pulp Fiction in a, for a couple of years, but I remember the first time I saw it, I was like, this is crazy. That was a crazy, great movie. Cool. Okay. So what are you grateful for? Family and friends. James, always grateful for the guests on the show. Today, I'm incredibly grateful for my wife. I woke up and, and in my morning reflection, I came to, you know, I often journal a little bit of what I'm grateful for. Today, what stood out for me is my wife, Stephanie. And like I say, I'm always grateful for the guests I have on the show. I'm grateful for the community that Rain has created and attracting and having uh, people like yourself involved in it. So thank you very much for your time today, James. And uh, lots of lessons in this one. Lots of uh, things that you've shared that I'm sure that as a listener, you can uh, take and make notes on and apply in your own real estate investing business and in your life. So thanks again, James. Awesome. Thanks for having me, Patrick. It's been my pleasure. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. If you found value in the podcast, please take the time to rate and review and share with others, share with your friends. As it is my goal to always improve and to provide the highest value for you, the listener, if you have any comments, suggestions, or questions you'd like answered, please email me at ceo at raincanada.com. That's ceo at reincanada.com. I look forward to hearing from you. And until next time, Patrick out.